Romans chapter 1, starting in verse number 14. Appreciate Samuel and uh, reading that passage for us. For some of us, that may be one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture, um, and, and I would agree so. That's uh, such a pivotal, pivotal um, area in, 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 in all of the Bible because really the book of Romans is, is probably the lengthiest uh, uh, book in which Paul wrote that has explained uh, what the gospel is and, and what it's about and what it means to us. So, so appreciate that uh, uh, so much. If you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles again in Romans chapter 1 as we uh, have, have begun this really marvelous book as, as uh, we're, we're beginning to explore, we're, we're beginning to dig, we're beginning to, to just think more about it. And I will not do a, a raise of hands this morning. However, I will remind you that there is a challenge that has been given to each and every one of you. And what is that challenge? to read the book of Romans, how often? Every single week. Now, just like you were, you were challenged to look at your receipts, I challenge you in your phones to look at your screen time to see how many, how many hours that you dedicate to being on this if you would just give a fraction of what we dedicate to our phone usage, we can read the book of Romans at the very least one time out of the week. Amen? Uh, amen. Yeah. Sure, preacher. Yeah. I'm going to challenge you. And uh, if you don't, um, you, you don't want to know what I'll do to you. But uh, again, that's the challenge is um, read the book of Romans every single week. All right. Um, and uh, that'll be good for our souls. It really will. It, uh, it'll benefit us in, in, in ways that we really fully cannot comprehend because um, that's one of the ways, as we're going to study this morning, uh, that it is God's power to change you and me. Does anybody really come across people in their life, or maybe this is you, that you get to a point in your life where people are just like, I'm just ready for a change. I am ready for a change. And, um, and, and for a lot of us, that, that time, if we are really open to God and all of the ways that God works, that time can come today for us. If, even, if, even if we've been converted, even if we've become Christians already, uh, I challenge you that we continually, every single day, need to be changing more and more to look like our Lord Jesus. And so the changing does not stop. It continues every single day. You know, there's something about power that humans are in love with, right? There's something about power that just attracts us to it, right? Whether we study such ruthless kings and emperors of the past that were power-driven, or, or we look around today and, and see our children lining up to watch the most recent Marvel movies. Why are, you, uh, why are we gathered around these? Because we love power. We love powerful people. That's just, that's just what uh, invigorates us. It, it, uh, it may challenge us. It may inspire us. I don't know. But, you know, you think about guys like Thor and Iron Man and the Hulk, you, all these kids that, that dressed up for Halloween is you have this, your favorite character who is the most powerful one, and, and it's who's on your, uh, your notebook that you buy as you went to school and, and, uh, and all of those things. And and when we think about uh, ourselves, we're drawn to power. You know, this morning, we're not here to talk about uh, worldly or fable type of power. We're here to talk about true power. We're here to talk about the greatest power there ever is and has been and ever will be. It's the power of God. 
Have you ever just stopped to think about what kind of power God truly has? You know, we, we love to watch uh, different uh, YouTube videos on, on the cosmos and, and galaxies and, and really how big the universe is, which, again, scientists uh, just continue to be baffled by all these theories that we develop on our own to try to, uh, try to define uh, our existence, that try to come up with some kind of uh, a basis for how we are to, to uh, where we are today as the human, the human race, taking God out of the equation, and, and continually they find it to be impossible right, uh, to think about those things. And when you go to the Bible and it says that God spoke everything into existence, that gives us just a hint of the power. You think about some of the most ruthless people in all of humankind to think about God having the ability to change them. Maybe that person you've been praying for to say, man, there's just no way that they would ever become a Christian. If they give themselves to God... His power does the work. His power does the work. And so as we've kind of studied already in Romans chapter 1, just to give a little background um, in this uh, part of chapter 1, in verse 14, here's what Paul says. He says that I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And I want us to just pause right here and think about these terms these labels that Paul has, has, has put on certain groups of people, and he doesn't do so in a demeaning way. He's simply using the wording of people around him in that culture at that time. You think about what, the he- according to the Hebrew people, the Hebrews classified all men as either Jews or Gentiles. Either you're one of us or you're not one of us. You think about Romans. The Roman people would classify all men as either Romans or pagans. Two, two types of people, two groups. You think about Greeks. In the mind of a Greek, it was either you're one of us, Greeks, or you are barbarians. But as we kind of dive a little bit deeper into these terms, we think about where the Greeks, where their minds were. If you were a Greek, you thought of yourself as cultured, as sophisticated, or educated The barbarians, on the contrary, anybody who does not speak their language, right, were considered uncultured, unsophisticated, and uneducated. The wise were the people that had been to school. They had followed under great teachers. They had learned from great philosophers, and as a result, were polished. On the other hand, you have the unwise folks who were uneducated who were not learned, who didn't know, and as a result were considered unpolished. And so what is the point that that, that Paul uses all of these names and he says in verse number 16 that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. It does not matter how much education you have. It does not matter where you went to school. Although if you did go to MV, go Mustangs, but everywhere else, it doesn't really matter, right? But the gospel is for everyone. That's the point that Paul is making. Without exception, God does not discriminate, and neither should we. And so there are things that we can take away from this message, 
we get into verse number 15, and he says, so for my part, as a result, because of what was just stated, he says, I'm eager. This word eager is the word translated as ready in some of our Bibles. It means you're excited and you're enthusiastic about something. You know, ladies, when you come across a, a great deal at the store, so great of a deal that you've got to call your best friend and tell them about this deal. Guys, you just picked up a new hobby. And as you're learning about this hobby, you come to find out that you're so intrigued, you're so enthusiastic that you're going to be buying things left and right for this new hobby. You're so enthusiastic. It's, it's what children do when they leave Bible class with their crafts and with their Bible verse. And as they come to mom and dad, and they're so ready to tell them about, about all that I learned in Bible class, this is the word here. Paul says, because we as human beings categorize folks and, and we label, we have a tendency to say, no, they wouldn't, no, they can't. But God says, yes, they can. Because of that, he says, I'm eager, I'm ready, I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic to do what? To preach the gospel message to you also who are in Rome. And so as a result, Paul says, although he felt obligated, in other words, this is what I've got to do, it's my calling, so to put it. Even though he felt obligated, he did not feel that it was a burden or an imposition. You've heard the phrase, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. For those who are really blessed, we get to live this out. I am one of those people that have been blessed to do something I love. And never do I consider it work. And so when we think about that idea, it should never be a burden to tell others about the God who gave you life through the death of his son. If the gospel means that much to me, then it would never and can never become a burden to me to share. And we're going to take this idea and run with it because there's a reason why I think Paul uses the word ashamed. He goes on again in 16 and 17. Again, we read this, but we're just kind of uh, lightly touching on it. He says, as a result, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, hold on, Paul. Why are you bringing this word shame into it? There's a reason. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul is eager to preach the gospel because he is not ashamed of it, right? These verses 16 and 17 are some of the most pivotal, pivotal verses in all of Scripture that we can see that God's plan is an action to be given to people all the way back to Genesis 3 and 15 from the garden, and Adam and Eve and, and, and their, and their hang-up there and, and what the consequences were all the way forward. This is the crescendo in all of the Bible about human, re human redemption and about man being a, a, a slave to our own lusts and desires, being freed from that because of the life that was given on our behalf. That is God himself. And so this is a very important part of your Bible. If you may remember that uh, thinking about this shame, now, Paul, why would you bring that up? If you remember in Mark chapter 8 in verse 38, let's turn there in your Bibles and start a little bit before this verse here. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse number 34, the Bible says, 
And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save their life. You you see how upside down this is? According to the world and, and the culture, this is so backwards. In order to gain my life, I must lose my life. He says in verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what will man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, notice that, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, he says, in this adulterous and sinful generation, it is the Son of Man that will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Church, the more that I read my Bible, the more that I'm reminded over and over again that God's word is timeless. He says that in this time of a crooked and perverse and adulterous generation, I'm thinking that's today. That is 2023, is it not? You look around and and the world is saying what is bad, what is evil is actually good for us. And for you to hold to what is good, that's actually harmful to everybody else. It's so twisted, is it not? And so Jesus said, just like in this generation of the first century, a message like this is so contrary to what everybody else believes in and is partaking in, so is the case for us today. You may remember another passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Starting in verse 6 through 8, Paul, as he is encouraging a young preacher by the name of Timothy, he says, For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to rekindle, to relight, to reflame afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, because God has given us this, Paul says, do not be what? Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You know, um, as faith, our oldest, sorry, baby, you're in this sermon again, but as she entered uh, kindergarten. She attended a, a, a um, kindergarten class in Chandler several years ago. And we had uh, gotten into the routine of taking her early. They started at 7 a.m., which, which in my mind is, it is too early for, for us to be up and trying to be, be moving with all of our kids at that time. But they started that early. And I remember we had to have them there by 7 a.m., before 7 a.m., or the gates literally would shut. 
And so I remember we, we, we would make this a task, and, and I would go and drop her off on certain days, and Crystal would do other days. And, and I remember one morning, specifically, as I parked the car, and I have her, and we're walking up, and, and you know, as all of the, 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 the sidewalks kind of uh, merge into one main sidewalk into the entrance of the school, I remember Faith sees one of her friends from class. And, you know, it's just something about this, this person's in my class of this whole school, and there's excitement, and her name is Julia. And Faith says, hey, Julia. And uh, Julia says, hi, Faith. And, and Faith feels obligated to introduce me because I'm holding her hand. She says, Julia, this is my dad. He's kind of weird, but uh, I love him. <laughs> and this is me. And Julia kind of does this, and they pick up on their conversation, and there they go. In that moment, what Faith said, meet my dad. He's weird, but I love him. I've thought about that statement over and over again, that the gospel message, if we could make a connection, is it not weird? in the sense that it is contrary to everything we're taught today. So though it might be different, though it might be weird, though we might be aliens in this world, contrary fish swimming upstream, though it's so different from the world, I'm not ashamed of it and I'm not apologizing to anybody about it because I love the person who gave it to me and you. And so that's what the challenge is, is do not let shame be anywhere entangled with your willingness to share the gospel message, which is what he says. And so why be ashamed? I think the implication is that the message of the gospel might be one that in a culturally sophisticated world, I'm going to use that word, you have all of these great philosophers, all of these new teachings in this area of the world, one might shrink back in shame to share. If we can do ourselves a service today, it is to make the gospel so natural for our families every single day that it's the world that is different from what we're all about. Did you catch that? We make our home, we make our family, we make day-to-day -day living so aligned with the gospel message that it's not the gospel that's weird, it's the world that's different. And so when our children are exposed and they go out and they experience, it's going to be different. That's going to be the, the world that is not aligned with what I know as, as a growing child of God. And it's our job to create a home, an environment, whether we're talking about our own specific homes or this congregation. It's our job, church, to make this the norm. This is the norm. Getting up Sunday morning, ready, excited to worship with the brethren, that's our norm. Getting ready to study and prepare my mind and my heart for the gospel message to convict me so I can be a little bit more like my Lord today, that's the norm. Going out and taking what I've learned and sharing it with people, that is the norm. It's not the difference. As one author put it, Rome itself was the center of human power and pomp and presumptuousness. 
It was the crossroads of worldly wealth and wisdom and sophistication, according to the world, that is. And so it would be easy to be ashamed. Notice, it would be easy then in that type of culture to be ashamed to preach and teach a crucified Messiah to a cultured, educated, and sophisticated city full of great teachers. Again, according to the world's standards, it would be easy to be ashamed of that, would it not? Is it easy to be ashamed today to have a discussion with a college professor about the gospel? It would be easy to be ashamed of it if that is my norm. If I'm so involved with human wisdom, it'd be easy to be ashamed of it. But if this is the norm for me, that helps me out in this area. It helps me in this area. And so the gospel message, if you think about it, again, think about what the world is about and think about what we're about. Think about what the world believes and think about what we believe. Now think about us taking this weird message, if I could use faith's word, take this message and give it to the world. Notice some of the, the parts of this message. The gospel message is about a poor, again, an uneducated uh, Hebrew man, according to even rabbinic schools, a Jew by the name of Jesus. And this Jew named Jesus was born like a peasant in a stable in Bethlehem to poor parents. He was raised up in Nazareth, right? Again, the wrong side of the tracks. You remember what Nathaniel says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And this peasant-born Jew died a horrible death on a Roman cross between two thieves, which also implied to people around him, though he didn't do it, that he died the death of a criminal. And this is the person that died, was buried, and was risen again to live. Think about that message as we take it out into the world. Does that not seem weird? <laughs> Does that not seem different? Well, to the world it is. To us, it's life, which is exactly what Paul says. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness. Now, it's a play on words. According to the world, what we believe in is what? Foolishness. And says, okay, fine. For this word of the cross, this foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man, God says? I will, uh, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Again, according to wisdom from man, the gospel message is foolish. The word of the cross, it makes no sense. He goes on to say, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through this foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks, they search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it is a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, well, it's simply foolishness. But to those who are the called, that is you and 
me, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Church, my point is this. To the world, what we're doing right now is foolishness. Last night, for those who were here for area-wide singing, there was 87 of us that gathered here in this building to sing songs to a risen Lord Jesus. As we're singing, there is an NFL wild card game going on. How do I know that? There's a bar four, de- four doors down from here. And there's people yelling and screaming, and there's motorcycles racing, and uh, there, there's all kinds of, of things going on there. Now, you stop to think how different it is for one of them to stagger on by and to peek a glimpse in here and see a group of people singing praises to somebody they believe was killed, buried, and resurrected 2,000 years ago. Now, to the majority of the world, that sounds dumb. It sounds foolish. But to us, Paul says, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And that's what we're convicted on. And so as we kind of conclude here, just two remarks, two truths about what the gospel message is. Number one, the gospel is the tool that God uses. It's what the Almighty chooses to utilize as that vessel to get information from him to every single human being. Look with me at chapter 1 and verse number 2. So actually, verse number 1, the beginning of this this beautiful book of Romans. Paul says, Me, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for what reason? For the gospel of God. He says, verse number 2, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 5, through whom we have received apostleship and grace to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Did you catch that? You ask this question, how does God get the gospel to man? That's what's answered for us in verses 1 through verse 6. You have God, speaks through prophets and apostles, they preach the message, and they write it down, and the message that they have written down is what we have today, Every single person who wants to believe it, they will after being convicted. That's how God gets the gospel to us. It's how God chooses to work. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, another familiar passage. Read with me. The Hebrew writer says, For since the wisdom of God... Actually, I don't think I changed the passage. So everybody turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12 in your Bibles. Here he says, the word of God is living and active. He says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare 
to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You think about that word, alive. Or you think about that word as he begins, the word of God is living. It means alive. It's not dead. It's not stagnant. It's moving. It's doing things. And so God's word, his gospel message, God himself, he says, is alive. 1 Peter uh, 1 and verse 24, the Bible says, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers away, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God has always been active and always will be active, and he does that partly through his word. Number two, he says, not only is it living, but it is active. Verse number 12 this is the word from which we get the word energy, right? It has the idea of, of strong and powerful as well as constant in motion. It's effective. He says it, the gospel is living, is active, and he says is sharp, right? Two-edged swords were known for their ability to cut and slice very easily in any direction. That is what the Bible says the word is also. You know, I don't know about you, but the first time that I started hearing the gospel message before I ever became a Christian, and there are stories, and I think everybody may have felt this, but I remember sitting in class or sitting in a service, and, and, and Josh is preaching a message, and I'm just thinking in my mind, how could Crystal tell him all the things that I just did this past week? And I've this, like, built-up emotion, like, how could she tell him? He's preaching exactly what... I went through this past week, and even DeCoven, I remember that we had a Bible study at our apartment, and he's, DeCoven says, uh, and he'll tell you this, he says, Josh is in there having a Bible study with us, Crystal, myself, and Brianna, uh, Crystal's sister, in the living room, and DeCoven um, wasn't up for a Bible study. Matter of fact, he was sitting in the bedroom, but he's so intrigued about what's going on, he secretly kind of gets to the doorway and he's listening to the Bible study that's going on. And as Josh is, I don't know what, I don't know what you taught on, do you remember? I don't know, he was, it's one of the Bible studies and, and he teaches a whole lesson. We have a great, we have a great turnout and, and we say goodbye and as, G, as uh, Jesus, as Josh leaves, <laughs> as, he's good representation, yeah, he's, he's, uh, as Josh is leaving, DeCoven says, he ran, put his shoes on, ran out the door, and tracked him down in the elevator. And he says, listen, man, I don't know what Brianna told you, but that's not exactly how everything went down. And Josh says, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, everything you just talked about in the Bible study, that's what I'm going through right now. So when did Brianna tell you all of this? And Josh says, I haven't talked to Brianna about anything. What's my point? God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Wherever you are in your life, God's word will convict you. God's word has the power to open you wide up. You have nowhere to go. Matter of fact, he says that in verse number 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are made open and laid bare to the eyes of God. We are laid open to God. So some of us are really good at putting up a front to other people. So good that a lot of us believe it. Not with God. He knows everything about us. 
He knows what you're thinking right now, that the preacher's preaching way too long. He knows that you're thinking about, you know, what are we going to eat for lunch? He, he knows what you're going to think tomorrow, and you haven't even gotten there. That is what life is like for God. It's so laid bare to him that nothing escapes his notice. That's the gospel message, and it can convict you if you are truly up for giving it that part in your life. So he says the gospel is living, it is active, it is sharp, and four, it is piercing. It is able to penetrate into the deepest, most hidden parts of a person's life. And finally, he says in verse number 12, he says at the end, it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus taught that his word will judge us on the last day. You may remember John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Or Revelation 20, starting in verse 11, where John records, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and great, great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, John says, and says another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that which were written in these books. Do not let people tell you that God that we are not to judge. God is a God that makes judgment all the time, and we as Christians are to judge everything in our lives based on what we know is to be right or wrong, godly or ungodly, and based upon that judgment, we make decisions for our lives. Do not let people tell you and push you aside and say, you're a Christian. Christians are not supposed to judge. No, I would argue we are to judge more than we probably are aware of. We are to make those decisions. We are called to, to call out those things that are against God. We are to live in a way that is, that is for what God advises us to be like. And so as a result, the gospel requires a response because it proves that God does, God does not wash, want anyone to perish. You know, when we think about what the Bible says, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter says the Lord does not, is not slow about his promise, but he counts slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish. 1 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 3 and 4, this is what Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Today, if you are not a Christian, it is God's desire, it is his wish that you would be convicted by this message and you would be called to repent, turn your life around and give it to God and to be baptized into the watery grave. As you go in, you are replicating, you are reenacting Jesus as he died, was buried, and was raised. We're also called to do the same thing. That we die to our old self, we're buried in water, and we are resurrected to a new life. And the same power, church, that rose Jesus from the dead, that same power is used on you and me. That God makes us a, cre a new creation. That is God's desire for you today, because it's not about what we can do for ourselves, but it's what God can do through 
for and around us. If that is something you need to take advantage of today, then why, why wait? I don't understand that. If you went to a store and you saw a great deal on exactly th- on things you needed, would you pass that up? Would you take full advantage of it? That's God's call today, is for you to be changed into the likeness of his son. If you are a Christian and you're struggling, then we would love to just wrap our arms around you, give you a giant hug and pray on your behalf. If you need to take advantage of this offer, please come forward as we stand and we sing our invitation song.